Welcome to episode 36 of Political OD. Our last podcast ranged across a number of issues and the protocol didn't actually feature very much. So we thought we'd come back quickly and talk about that specifically uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, negotiations have once again started up between the UK and the EU, and also because of the pending election at the end of October, uh, when the six months following the previous one uh, ends, and we are by law expecting an election to be called by the Secretary of State. Is that right, Owen? Yes, and I think in, in previous occasions when this scenario has occurred, the Secretary of State has been able to legislate in order to lengthen that time. But Mr. Heaton-Harris seems very determined to go ahead with the election on this occasion. So we must assume that we're going to go to the polls in about a month's time. Or, well, the, the election will be called in a month's time and then we'll be into another campaign. And in that, of course, he's only doing what the law says he ought to do. Uh, and I think what I've observed of the current set of ministers for the most part they tend to be fairly straightforward they they're not overly complicating things perhaps that's a <laughs> perhaps a bit more explanation would do uh, the prime minister and chancellor a bit of of, uh, of, of, of of extra value but most of the ministers that i've heard on radio and that have been just fairly matter of fact and straightforward on their policy areas well, the messages have been quite simple and they, they've followed through on things that they said that they would do. Whether that's a good thing or not, you know, is dependent on your view of how the government is doing, how how these policies will, will sort of pan out in the long term. But yes, there does seem to be a kind of uh, an attitude that we're going to be fairly straight without any particular sort of illusions or, or whatever in the background. So let, let's just let's just take the presumption that there's going to be an election at the end of an election called at the end of October. The EU negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol at the moment. I think we we should go back to why there hasn't been any uh, since February. If we recall correctly, both the EU and the UK government agreed to pause negotiations while there would be an election to the Northern Ireland Assembly, largely not to have undue influence on the outcome of that assembly. That was the first pause. And then immediately after the election, everybody was somewhat surprised by the DUP basically not only not entering the Northern Ireland Executive on the basis of wishing to see the protocol ended, not even enabling the formation of the assembly uh, to sit as an assembly. So effectively putting the choice for everyone being the Good Friday Agreement or the Northern Ireland Protocol, fairly stark, but again, a fairly simple policy statement or a policy position. Uh, and then, of course, I think the EU then wasn't in much of a rush because almost within a month of that, I think not, not long after that, uh, it was quite clear that Boris Johnson was on the ropes as Prime Minister. And I think the EU also hoped at that point that perhaps if there was an election that Rishi Sunak would come out on top or certainly a person who might be more amenable to the EU's position and be less willing to stand over Northern Ireland and the single market and indeed the sovereignty on which Brexit is based. 
And of course, Boris did resign. Uh, and then there was a long period over the summer of the Conservative Party uh, internal election for leader. And then uh, Liz Truss taking on uh, the prime minister. Role. And I don't think the EU will have been too pleased at Liz Truss taking on that role either. No, um, I was a bit confused to hear this kind of retrospective analysis from the EU that it was somehow the intransigence of the uh, British government that had prevented the negotiations taking place because you've just set out the timeline very ably there, David. And I mean, yes, if if you go back to when the election was called um, at the joint committee, the EU said that they were going to negotiate discreetly and that was perceived even at the time as you know a, a bit of a euphemism for saying well we're not really going to do anything while this election is going on because yeah. it can be seen as somehow affecting um the internal politics of northern ireland if only they were so sensitive uh, the rest of the time um and as you say then we were into the summer and and the, the conservative party's troubles the, the dup's policy which has been actually um, exceptionally popular among unionists and seems to have led to a bit of a revival for the DUP, a party that was really struggling um, at, uh, over the past few years for, for various reasons, for various per, uh, various perceptions that people have. And this is, I, I think, the most popular policy that it's actually had for ages, backed by, you know, if you believe some of our pollsters, and they're not always wonderful, but uh, they're, they, you know, they're, they're saying over 80%. I mean, that's such a resounding number that it, it must have some basis in truth. But we are now in this position where we've re-entered a negotiation. I think that will make many unionists feel a little nervous, but there is also this kind of deadline of, of the election uh, in the background. And some people are trying to encourage the idea really that we need desperately to get some sort of outcome, any kind of outcome, before that election takes place. Well, I thought it was interesting in the past few weeks because one of the reasons why the EU wouldn't have been too keen on Liz Truss becoming Prime Minister uh, was that she was the instigator. She was certainly the sponsor of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which uh, a great many got very upset about. The bill itself, of course, does nothing. Um, other than put in place a set of powers that might be used, could be used if ever uh, the British government felt it necessary uh, to basically rebalance sovereignty in favour of the United Kingdom, where the protocol was causing such problems that they simply had to be resolved and that the EU was quite clearly not going to be amenable to any negotiation or change. That protocol bill continues. There was a huge roar this week and a great expectation that the House of Lords were going to kill the bill on the second stage and to hamper negotiations uh, from the British side by um, stopping the protocol bill in its tracks going through the House of Lords. That hasn't actually happened, it seems. Um, So the protocol bill continues to its committee stage where they discuss it line by line. But at this point, it could be expected that it will continue its path through the Lords. Yes, I don't know what we're going to take from the fact that there was no vote vote actually taken in the House of Lords, that uh, the proponents of the various amendments didn't 
um, push them into a vote, presumably because they didn't think that they were going to be successful. But it perhaps suggests that the kind of struggle to get this through the House of Lords is not going to be as um, immense as, as we had first thought. Maybe people's sort of opposition to the bill is more tactical than substantial. But a, a lot of the powers are discretionary, are, are discretionary certainly. Yeah. I think what it does do uh, substantially is that it reverses the assumption that uh, goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are at risk of entering the EU by default. Um, the legislation does sort of explicitly reverse that uh, that assumption. That's uh, actually quite an important thing and it makes a difference to the um, ability of goods to move here. A lot of the, the, the powers certainly are discretionary, but it is vital going into the negotiations that we have this uh, in the background as uh, uh, to, to give us a, a strong negotiating position. And I mean, the House, the, the, the House of Commons previously undercut the, the UK government's negotiating position. I think it would be very unfortunate if the House of Lords did this um, on this occasion by delaying the bill that is actually you know, going to be needed if we can't get a satisfactory outcome here, or that at least that's the that's the hope and that's uh, the kind of commitment that we've had from the government in the past, whether it follows through on that or not, that's again a kind of a different matter. I mean, they hope that they do. I mean, we can't say exactly what's going to happen, but it is encouraging at the present time that both uh, the government uh, with the protocol bill seems to be proceeding with a path um, and whatever noises are coming out in terms of it, the, the feverish speculation on every last word that's uttered in some way or another, um, that that bill is, is proceeding. Uh, also that the DUP seem to be quite clear. Uh, and I think if you, uh, I mean, Jeffrey Donaldson, the, you, he's not a, he's not a, a uh, an orator in the style of of uh, in Paisley or or uh, anyone on a soapbox, but uh, what he lacks in uh, aggressive style, he certainly makes up for a clear and elusive um, outlining of a policy position. And I think the policy position is quite clear. There's no assembly and there's no executive unless the protocol is fully and properly addressed in line with what the DUP set out some considerable time ago uh, last year in terms of its seven seven uh, ideas yeah i mean i'm i'm have been very critical about the D, uh, of the dup for many reasons but what you would say is that this is a relatively pragmatic version of the dup that we're seeing at the moment this is not an extremist um party and jeffrey donaldson set out at the weekend a very kind of almost boilerplate um vision of secular or inclusive unionism uh, where, where where all kinds of identities were prized and where diversity was spoken of as actually a strength of the union so the government should take the fact that the dup therefore is so stringent in its opposition to the protocol and so determined not to enter the exec re-enter the executive until this is sorted out is really a statement of intent and a statement of how serious this situation is. It's not some sort of trivial, abstruse argument that we're having. This is this actually is quite existential. It goes to the heart of, of the union. And that's why this is being taken to, to, to such a, a high level by the by the DUP, because 
you know, it, it, it's not something that can be wished away or, or ignored in order, you know, to, 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 to focus on, on, on more positive things like they would probably like to do. Because, I mean, I, I've got absolutely no doubt. I, I have my reservations about how important Stormont is in the scheme of things, but I've got no doubt that the DUP would like to be back there with their offices and their devolved powers and all the things that they've become very attached to over the years, as have the other parties, of course. Yes, we are where we are at the moment, and it looks like they're they're digging their heels in. It's worthwhile looking at what are, what are we like, because we've kind of been here before where there's unionist positions that are quite clear. Uh, and I think we've already heard the, the, the voices from some saying, well, the DUP should just say now that it's prepared to roll over because it's going to have to do that eventually. Anyway, stands against what the DUP is saying, obviously. Uh, but there are those voices that are sort of saying, "Oh well, sure, we're just we're just have to take whatever we're given at the end of the day." And those voices are there uh, at present already. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the the kind of contradiction to that is that, um, as I pointed out earlier, the DUP stance is actually popular, and it's one of the you know most popular things that it's actually done. In recent times, because, you know, it, it, its support has fallen off, it's had internal difficulties, it's had uh, sort of perceptions of, of greed and ineptitude during the, the, during the whole protocol business, but um, it is actually on the rise because of this. And, you know, the important aspect of that is that any if we are now moving to a deal and and the, the the mood music as they talk about is certainly kind of pointed to that as if we may be now on the road to getting some sort of negotiated settlement it's very important that that contains the right content the the, the things that are set out in the protocol bill and actually acts as a solution to the protocol or else we're just going to be back at square one really with instability um, and, and this kind of virus that is going to just eat away at the union over the years and decades yeah. to come. So the idea that, you know, wh- whatever we get, I mean, we, we can be fairly confident. We could probably pick out now the people who will be telling us uh, in a month's time if we get a deal, any kind of deal, if the deal contains, you know, a mandatory punch in the mouth for every man, woman and, ch- and child there'll be people standing there telling us that this is the best that we can get and that we have to snap uh, the EU's hand off for it and move on and that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, well, I think I think that fits into the pattern of, of previous negotiations around the Northern Ireland Senate, probably for the past 20 years, where basically uh, the Sinn Féin create a crisis and then the DUP are ending up having to basically... Uh, create a compromise. I think these are such fundamental issues. Compromise is very difficult. That's the first thing. But also in in terms of the the shouts off a deal, we can imagine what that deal would be in terms of the optics. And that is that checks are much reduced. But given that the EU hasn't changed the negotiation mandate for its negotiators, um, all that is, is simply we won't see the checks, but actually all the paperwork and tax and tariff and uh, logistical delays that are within, not, not, not least the costs, um, they're all going to remain. 
and yet that will be said, oh, well, you can't see it, so it's all okay. I think that's basically what we could expect from any notional deal that might be announced. Yeah, the checks are a small, almost a symbolical, a symbolic aspect of this. And I mean, you've set out all of those practical um, trade type barriers that could remain. There's also serious constitutional issues, for example, the EU's uh, the EU having a say in Northern Ireland without any kind of elected representation, the idea that it might constrain our tax laws, uh, the idea that it might have uh, some sort of say in what in what state aid the government can uh, produce uh, regulation. Uh, the fact that companies, you know, may not be able to follow British regulations, but actually have to meet single market regulations, even if that's you know, possibly what they what they're likely to be doing anyway. Um, all of these things are very serious issues constitutionally, and we'd like to think that the government is alive to that. Um, but I know that once it gets into this, and we've, we've heard this awful phrase about the negotiating tunnel, yes. and um, Steve Baker, the Northern Ireland minister, saying that there are no red lines. I mean, I can understand why when you're standing on the brink of a negotiation, you want to appear as if you're uh, open to concessions and, and, and that this is going to be a fruitful process. But there are a sort of a minimum set of requirements that uh, need to come out of this if we are to be able to claim at all that the union has been repaired and that the UK internal market has been repaired. And it's not just simply a matter of kind of going into this and sort of taking, you, you know, we'll move halfway towards you in this and you move halfway toward us on that. The, the European Court of Justice, again, another pivotal issue in, in terms of those constitutional uh, aspects of, of the deal as pointed out of any perspective uh, deal as pointed out by Lord Frost earlier this week. Can we also maybe at this point also point out that if that were the deal simply to remove the checks, the physical manifestation of the protocol, uh, that it really does show the absurdity of the EU position throughout this entire process in that this would be the same unicorn thinking they said was absolutely part of the idea that you could have the border uh, uh, on land. If you don't have the physical manifestation, and remember it was checks that was specifically the reason why you needed the border in the Irish Sea, uh, then basically you really, you know, why have the protocol if you can make all these checks uh, without any physical manifestation? Seems oh. a completely absurd position. I mean, I describe the checks as almost symbolism whenever you go into the actual kind of um, practicalities that stop companies sending goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. But I think that the symbolism was important to the EU because it wanted to show that it was punishing Britain. Yes. It wanted to show that it had a presence on the ground here, that Northern Ireland was effectively a part of its single market and that it was, you know, splitting up the United Kingdom in that kind of real physical way. And that's why you heard all this rhetoric about um, unicorn thinking and uh, magical thinking and all the rest of the kind of meaningless cliches that were trotted out throughout that stage of, of the process uh, in the run up to the protocol. The protocol would be or a potential deal would be one issue. I think then we have to look at the, the the ongoing and underlying issues, of course, that there'll be 
there, there, there will be much pressure on. And that, of course, is to get the assembly back because of the cost of living crisis, which will be another, you know, how can you reject this deal while there's a cost of living crisis? We need the assembly up. And if there weren't a deal, those that discussion would still be remaining. You would still have that discussion about we need an assembly because of the cost of living crisis. I think there's a couple of things. First of all, Alliance seemed to say we need an assembly because of the cost of living crisis, but most of their solutions seem to be geared to what Westminster needs to do. Um, I, I, I find that a wee bit baffling. I find Sinn Féin's position at the current time uh, almost more baffling in that uh, we had Conor Murphy, the finance minister, yesterday uh, come out and talk about uh, the 900 uh, million black hole in uh, Northern Ireland's accounts uh, with only 300 uh, available to block that. So a 600 million black hole in the accounts. Uh, and standing then later in the day, having announced that alongside Michelle O'Neill, who then said we need to get the Assembly back to put money in people's pockets. And I'm a bit baffled as to where the money is going to come from to put into people's pockets if there's a 600 million black hole in terms of delivering day-to-day -day services. I just don't understand how you can both need every penny just to keep the lights on and on the other hand say, but we'll give you all money in your pocket. That doesn't make any economic sense. Not that I necessarily expect economic sense from Sinn Féin, but this seems to be blatantly contradictory. Well, Sinn Féin isn't particularly hot in its sums, is it? I mean, no. they produced the four, the, the three-year budget that was supposed to be such a boon to everybody in Northern Ireland, and uh, the independent watchdog came along and said that it wasn't based on any kind of plan whatsoever. That no. It just figures plucked from the top of somebody's head. So I don't think that it's a particular surprise to hear this kind of nonsense. I mean, it's the kind of logic that devolved parties use all the time. It's basically whatever money that we get, we need more. And you're being terribly unreasonable and terribly unfair if you can't provide it. There's never a kind of a thought that maybe we could use the money better or perhaps uh, cut back in some areas and, and, and spend it in others in order to blunt the cost of living crisis or whatever. And what people forget, or what you would get the impression that people forget from the kind of rhetoric from the Alliance Party, even the UUP, certainly Sinn Féin and the SDLP, is that this exact kind of attitude and these exact kind of debates would be what you would be in for if Stormont was actually to return. It's not like they would suddenly come back and start dispensing money to stop the pain that people are experiencing. It would just be, again, back into a great kind of um, irresponsible political situation where you like to sort of write checks, but you don't want to take responsibility for the overall finances or make any difficult decisions. So the idea that um, the executive returning would alleviate the cost of living crisis is really nonsense. It, it's uh, something that the government could far more effectively address directly. And it, indeed, it has the powers to do that if it, uh, if it feels compelled to do so. And, in, and indeed, during election, we would already be getting uh, notice of the the funds going into electric bills um, yeah. uh, direct from the from central government and some process for those who use oil uh, a payment towards oil apparently 
Uh, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. I heard this morning that I might go on the electric bills, but I don't see how you'd be able to identify people with oil and people with electric uh, or gas I, I, you know, through an electric bill. I think that's a bit of a an odd one. Uh, yeah, that, that that's a strange one. I don't know how that would work. Yeah, I'm sure they'll. I'm sure they'll. They'll find some means of dealing with it some sometimes somehow, uh, but I think we'll have those twin pressures of um, certainly we need the assembly back for the cost of living crisis, despite there being absolutely no indication that uh, Stormont would make one jot of a difference, uh, because all they seem to do is uh, be unable to think of anything that doesn't need more money from Westminster. Uh, rather than actually deal with the uh, the fundamental inefficiencies that must be in the system because we spend far more and the outcomes we have in Northern Ireland are so considerably less than those of equivalent government in, in England. Yeah, um, with the health service being the classic well, cause, it staggers towards another crisis in, in sort of early to mid-October and, and was well, doing so from September. It, you know, it was in crisis in 2019. It never really came out of crisis other than everybody uh, uh, you know, be, being distracted by COVID. Uh, but uh, you know, there was nothing done from what I can work out through that period uh, in, in terms of planning coming out the other side and what they'd need to do to basically reset. It was one of those periods where you could have, basically having nothing but cutting and pasting policies uh, from Westminster uh, for for a couple of years, they could easily have sat down and done some serious planning on how to reform the NHS and rebuild it from the position it was. They could easily have have spent their time better uh, in terms of planning. I've never seen a three-year plan for reforming the NHS and improving outcomes. I haven't seen it. Uh, you know, I'm not expecting a ten-year one, but I would. I'd like to see a plan, and that's not a strategy, uh, which apparently is is tantamount to doing something. A strategy is not doing anything without an implementation plan, and it's not just a set of lists. It's concrete outcomes that people can see, feel, and uh, believe is improving their life uh, and their life expectations. In the case of the NHS. Uh, and I don't think we're seeing that in Northern Ireland at the moment. Not at all. Um, so lots of pressure will be on the DUP. I think what comes out of this is that we would say that needs to be resisted uh, because there's little of consequence at this moment uh, in terms of accepting anything less than a th- th- than addressing the fundamentals uh, that current negotiations, because of the EU mandate, are unlikely to of themselves provide. I think that would be a summary on. Yeah, I, I think you're not going to see movement um, from the DUP for the time being. I don't think that there's anything on the table just at the moment um, that would entice them back into government. The only situations where I could see that maybe changing is if uh, the protocol bill uh, gets successfully out of the House of Lords quickly or if you get some sort of negotiated deal and the pest and the pressure piles on, and that's the point where they're going to have to be strong of purpose and where I would be a little bit nervous that uh, the, the kind of will to get back to, to Stormont and, and the fact that they're such a convinced devolutionist party, that, that would make me a little bit nervous. But for the time being, I don't really see any kind of, basis for them changing that position without completely undercutting themselves ahead of a potential election. Well, I think the bill would have to come out and 
um, the secondary legislation that would actually mean change would have to be outlined in terms of what would be ready to go uh, should the negotiations fail. And you, you know, negotiation, negotiation is all fine. But meanwhile, there's a lot of pain, particularly for the small business sector uh, and certainly for consumers in terms of online purchasing. Uh, and I think that's going to be even more difficult this 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 uh, Christmas. Um, and the lack of competition we have because we can't uh, have access to the same set of uh, opportunities that you could if you were ordering uh, online in England. Um, so I, I think we're we're coming to a point where we really need to see some uh, big changes and uh, move on. Maybe the EU will be a bit slow because. Again, the Conservative Party doesn't seem to be able to uh, understand the rules of elections and that um, you know, the, the, the loser accepts a result. Um, they seem to be in an absolute flux and if they don't sort themselves yeah. out... Yeah. There was uh, almost uh, uh, a slight uh, apt slip of the tongue there, David. But... No, I was absolutely <laughs> saying flux. Um, but unless they, unless they sort themselves out, then... You know, the one thing, if anything, uh, which I think is a, a, a general observation of electoral politics, and that is if you can't pull yourself together as a party and get to ha- get behind a leader, uh, then basically um, the electorate doesn't like it uh, generally. It suggests that if you can't agree amongst yourselves, you're not going to be able to agree on anything that will practically run the country. No, the electorate doesn't like a lot of flux, but um, certainly with the Conservative Party, uh, yes, there might be a temptation for the EU to sort of sit out and and, and wait it out and and assume that there'll be another change in leadership sometime soon. But I mean, I think that way lies electoral oblivion for the Conservative Party and that they would shoot their uh, credibility with the electorate for many years, possibly you know, upwards of a decade to come um, if, if they were to to change their leader again at this juncture. And I think if Trust wants to to survive into 2024 to run in the next election, these issues need to be dealt with um, one way or another, probably by the spring of 2023, uh, so that she can focus entirely on the election that will be coming in, in a year's time after that. Yeah, she's going to need wriggle room as well to make... Um, you know, every government does it, whether you like it or not, to, to make kind of popular announcements in the run up to that election and seem to give people a bit of hope for their uh, next sort of four or five years. So um, there's a lot of kind of hard work and pain, perhaps, to get out of the way in, in, in the interim. Let's come back uh, end of October, uh, see if that election is on and what, if anything, has changed Uh, around the protocol or anything else in politics. Uh, It seems to be moving at a fair pace at the moment. It it moves at a fair pace, but uh, everything changes and everything stays the same, David. Let's hope that it uh, eventually sorts itself out. Yeah, finds, finds an equilibrium. All right, thanks, Owen. Thank you.